1966, Dr. Maulana Karenga invented the tradition of Kwanzaa. Invent a tradition, you might say. You can't just create a tradition out of thin air. The whole point of tradition is that it anchors us to the past, to something people have done for a long time. But Karenga saw a need for Americans of African descent to connect to the cultures of Africa. Most knew very little about these cultures. They didn't know what country their ancestors came from or what tribal traditions were once theirs. Igbo, Ashante, Bantu. And the popular image of African peoples was dominated by negative stereotypes of primitives, cannibals, people so naive and incompetent that they couldn't rule themselves. Colonialization was seen as their fate. Timbuktu was shorthand for an exotic and backwards place rather than revered as the capital of an ancient and accomplished kingdom and home of a library that had been as great as Alexandria's until, like Alexandria's, it was destroyed by invaders. Karenga also thought that Christmas was as colonized as anything else in US life, dominated by white culture, and that African Americans needed an alternative. So he created this holiday that began the day after Christmas and ran for seven days and dedicated each day to a principle from African life, from Umoja, unity, to Imani, faith. Now, Kwanzaa is celebrated by people of the African diaspora who have made it their own. Many of them don't shun Christmas as Karenga did, but celebrate both. They have added a second A to the end of its name. Karenga spelled it K-W-A-N-Z-A. Perhaps they did this from a sense that, um, that it looked more like the uh, Swahili language that it was borrowing from, and perhaps to make it seven letters long, the way the holiday is seven letters, seven days long. The US Postal Service now issues Kwanzaa-themed stamps. The president sends out Kwanzaa greetings, and Hallmark now sells Kwanzaa cards. And like those who bemoan the commercialization of Christmas and other religious festivals, some who celebrate Kwanzaa have some regrets about these changes. In short, Kwanzaa is like any other tradition, mixed in intent, ever-changing, and subject to the pressures of its time and place. It may have started in an unusual way, but maybe it's not that unusual. A book called The Invention of Tradition by Eric Hobsbawm traces how traditions revered as many generations old or even ancient are often very recent inventions. Cover your ears if you're Scottish. The tartans that were supposedly developed by each ancient clan to identify them so that McDonald's, for example, have been wearing red and green for hundreds and hundreds of years? Nope, he says. The tartans were a modern invention 
created to forge a sense of identity in a rapidly changing Highland culture. The costume of the kilt goes back further than its plaid, but it is also far from ancient. It was actually invented in 1726. Another winter holiday, Hanukkah, has strayed similarly to Kwanzaa. What is the central story of Hanukkah? As I said, we'll hear it in full next week, but in brief, it celebrates a long-shot military victory over an occupying force, and the miracle that followed, the oil in the temple lamp lasting far beyond what was only one day's supply, leading to the eight-night festival we celebrate today. Guess what? The story about the oil isn't in the Bible at all. Not even in Maccabees, which tells the story of the war and, strictly speaking, isn't in the Bible either. It's in the Apocrypha. No, it was long after, when the Talmud was being compiled, that the rabbis told a legend of the miraculous oil. And any observant U.S. American Jew will tell you that Hanukkah is not a major holiday. In religious significance, it is at best a distant seventh place behind the Sabbath, the high holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and the three planting and harvest holidays of which most non-Jews and many Jews have only heard of one, Passover. The other two are Sukkot and Shavuot. In Israel, Hanukkah gets little attention. It's clear why it is a big deal in the United States. Because the dominant culture is Christian, and those in a minority religion can feel pretty swamped. In December, Christianity is inescapable. Its founding story and theology are literally in the airwaves in every store. No wonder Judaism's December holiday has grown over the generations. But, Christmas is no different in this regard. No one really knows what time of year Jesus was born. There's good historical reason to think it was springtime. But the holiday of Christmas was placed at the time of the birth of Saul Invictus, the unconquerable sun. That's S-U-N. Why then? If not that the Roman pagans had a big holiday then, and the newer minority downtrodden Christians needed a boost at that time of year. What better time to celebrate the birth of their own unconquerable God? Traditions are about the past. They connect us to generations that we never met, passing along their values and beliefs joys, fears, and hopes, like a relay runner's baton. But they also change and emerge. We create them all the time as we need them. We seem to be tradition-generating animals. Congregations are perfect examples. Do something two years running, and it becomes something we always do. Hard times spark new traditions. They always have. Our story today told how in the depths of the Cold War, a Christmas tradition was born. 
To this day, NORAD, which is part of the Department of Defense, has a grim purpose to track possible missile and air attacks and alert the Pentagon to any threats. What might come out of the tribulations of this year, when half the family is once again gathered around one table? Will we still bring the other half in via video conference? Our Christmas, our Christmas Eve service this year will seek to replicate our traditions as we turn out the lights in our homes, turn on our videos, and see each other's faces lit by candlelight. Will it match the magic of being shoulder to shoulder? Will it have some other magic we can't anticipate that we then want to continue even when we don't have to be in separate places? We'll find out a week from Thursday. Sometimes the challenges traditions face are global, like COVID, and sometimes they affect just one family. An Indonesian writer named Bivasiana Kestabrilia, uh, who occasionally chronicles her family's holiday traditions, wrote in 2018 about some changes in the way they were honoring the Muslim festival of Eid. She says, there are some changes that took place this year. For instance, my sister and I walked to the nearest praying site by ourselves instead of driving over there with our grandfather because he is sadly unable to join us at the moment. It felt kind of nice though, since the streets are rather quiet. With the religious chantings echoing all through town, it felt rather peaceful and serene. I wonder if this has become a new tradition for them now. Do she and her sister now walk from home to the mosque each time, making this quiet time part of the preparation for their prayers? This is another reason traditions are always dynamic. Their forms and meanings evolve over time in response to our changing needs. Families, after all, do not stay the same over the years. New family members are adopted or born. Some marry in or divorce away. Others die. Traditions hold things steady through times of change while also taking new forms to incorporate the changes. As Bibi Castabrilla says, I think with family time, things are bound to be ever-changing. And it's important to embrace the changes while also sticking to the traditions. If you are feeling like a few more traditions might anchor you more firmly to the things that matter to you, pay attention to opportunities to create new ones. You will begin to see them all around. The things we're already doing on a regular basis are fertile ground for traditions. This is one reason so many people add some kind of tradition to mealtimes, such as a moment's pause to give thanks. In fact, the song that we just thank, sang, We Give Thanks, is a mealtime grace. One version of it says, instead of for this time we share, the words, for this food we share. A favorite short song or phrase, or just the brief holding of hands around the table can quickly turn into a mealtime tradition. 
anything we find ourselves doing and saying, this was nice, let's do it again, may have the makings of a tradition. Or for that matter, it doesn't have to be all that nice. A friend recently shared a tradition revolving around the movie This Christmas, the cast of which includes Chris Brown, the rapper, singer, and composer who unfortunately earned a lot of notoriety due to his repeated assaults on his girlfriend, the singer Rihanna. My friend says, only partly tongue-in-cheek, that it is now a Christmas tradition for her and her husband to watch the movie This Christmas together, for one of them to say, good movie, such a shame about Chris Brown, and for the other to shake their head in sad agreement. One of our family traditions, a happier one, is to read the, lot, the latka that couldn't stop screaming ever loud every year. The book is about as old as our child, and we bought it when she was tiny and read it to her. I distinctly remember the occasion when she was three years old and we met the author, Lemony Snicket, at a community event. <clears throat> we told him she liked the book, and he bent down and said to her, what did that latka do? To which she responded with an obliging, ah! Once she learned to read, she took over the reading duties. And in recent years, when we've had a couple dozen friends and family over to eat latkes during Hanukkah, she has read it aloud and coached everyone in their part, which of course is to scream when the latka does. Tonight, with only the three of us at the latka fest, the tradition will continue and help tide us over until the time when friends can once again fill our home. But my point is that we didn't set out to create a tradition. We just pulled out the book a couple of years running because Hanukkah, and it stuck. Some things we do will stick, and some won't. A really good way to know which ones have the makings of a tradition is to listen to children. Children are often the most conservative force in a family because they thrive on the routine and the familiar. Something that from adults' perspective has only been done once or twice, from a child's perspective has been done every year in his memory. If a child says, are we gonna do X again? Unless she says it with a groan, it's a good bet that she's already turning it into a tradition. But you don't have to have a child nearby to create traditions. As I noted before, any group of people, such as a congregation, will create them. Do something once to try it out. If it was enjoyable or meaningful, repeat it at a regular interval, the next morning, the next week, or the next year. And lo and behold, you may have a tradition. Time is an ingredient, yes. One of the things that makes traditions powerful is the knowledge that people have carried them out and carried them on for many years, for many generations. But sometimes that knowledge is, a it is in fact a belief based on fog and smoke. And sometimes time is a luxury. 
African Americans are often cut off from their pasts. Native Americans had the brick walls of institutions erected between grandparents and grandchildren, tribal leaders, and the new generations, with the old unable to pass traditions on to the young. Often the descendants of immigrants don't know the traditions of those first generations, far less those from the old country. Maybe the immigrant generation was too traumatized by their past to want to pass it on. Maybe they saw safety and promise in assimilating, so they shed these traditions in order to become American. And so we may have been cut off from our roots. We can't live without them, though, so we grow new ones. As Monique Wittig says, we try to remember, but failing that, we invent. And those still to come will revel in the traditions we create and sustain today.